Welcome to Greenwood Forest, a podcast for people who are tired of cheap grace. All right, excited to be here today to talk about the cost of discipleship, uh, our most recent sermon series that we concluded, and dig in a little deeper to some of the stuff that we uh, raised over the course of that uh, sermon series. So with me around the table is Lauren Eford. Hi, Stephen. Wes Spears Newsom. Hi, Stephen. And I'm Stephen Stacks. So let's jump right in. Um, I think there's a pervasive idea in American Christianity that following Jesus should materially benefit you. You know, it contributes to your status in the community or as a citizen. You give a little of your income, but you get tax breaks for that. You make some friends, you hear some music, maybe you get to use the gym for free. So basically, there weren't a lot of reasons not to be a Christian in the uh, recent past in America, and a lot of cheap grace going around, as Bonhoeffer would put it. And I think this seems to be changing a little bit now in American culture. So I'd like to start by asking... Um, you guys to talk generally about what you think the costs of discipleship might be and how that plays out in the U.S. in, in 2018. I think it's, it's made me laugh because I grew up in a, a Christianity that always felt that it was being persecuted mm-hmm. and that there were lots of costs to discipleship about what was believed, um, and I was always troubled because I never saw anybody paying any costs um, for anything that they believed, and I was only kind of seeing maybe other people being hurt by it, Um, and that never struck me um, as right, and the more kind of stories I've I've read of past Christians like Bonhoeffer um, and others realizing that Jesus is calling us to a kind of life that shouldn't be easy and shouldn't be comfortable. And if we're feeling super comfortable and that life is super easy all the time, we may need to reflect a little bit on whether we're following Jesus as closely or not. Yeah, I guess I should clarify that I'm not talking about the white evangelical persecution complex uh, that, you know, conservative views on abortion and homosexuality might cause you to be disagreed with in the public sphere. Um, I think that, you know, I also grew up in a Christianity that thought, you know, the cost of discipleship was that when you stood up in public and said you're a Christian, a liberal might, you know, get mad at you. Um, But all those people also, you know, again, seem to not have any material costs to that. They they talk about it as a mental cost. It's so hard to to stand up and, and, you know, stand up for the truth. Uh, but they then continue to live very comfortable lives and don't seem to pay any of the type of costs that someone like Bonhoeffer is is talking about. I tend to agree with that, but I also think we really are shifting, right? The tide is shifting in our culture to a place where um, there are not uh, any true benefits to being a Christian, right? It's not coming with a gym membership um, or hearing good music, um, anymore. Uh, so I know. Uh, so what does it mean, uh, when you can hang out and go to brunch and, um, you know, live a really good life and be a good person. And a lot of folks, um, growing up who are being, um, 
indoctrinated into a totally different America, right? A different world um, where being a Christian is not about uh, being in the mainstream anymore. Um, and it's and is it and is it more right? Is it more than just I'll, I have a different opinion to share, um, and so that's going to cost me something? Uh, what are the actual costs? Um, and certainly, I think that there are real costs, right? Where there are costs to um, how you spend your bank account. There are costs to how you use your body, um, how you use your time, um, and that's not really. Those are not the conversations that we've been having. Yeah. Like one of the things that's never gotten away from me from growing up in kind of an evangelical church is that, and that I still believe, is that God has a holistic claim on your life. Mm-hmm. Like God does not just kind of rule over Sundays mm-hmm. for an hour or two. Mm-hmm. Um, like God is Lord of your whole life and it should affect everything that you do, not just. Um, the parts that are are convenient for you to give over. Um, I remember you, Lauren, told the the story in your one of these sermons about when we were at Pleasant Grove for the revival. Um, one of the pastors got up during the offering and said, "Don't give God something that didn't cost you anything." Mm-hmm. Um, but so much of faith in America is a faith. That doesn't that you can give like a lot to, but never to the point that it would cost you anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a part of this connects to um, the idea that it's no longer expected of a good citizen in this country to attend church, which is something that conservative Christians have tended to lament, um, but I actually think might be a wonderful opportunity for the church to reclaim what it means to actually follow Jesus. Um, If you were just attending church because it was, you you were gaining that cultural capital uh, from, you know, showing up on Sunday morning, then again, that's, that infects what people think it means to be a Christian and what the cost of discipleship is. I mean, that's a purely a benefit for you, right? There's no cost to that other than an hour on, you have to wake up early on Sundays, which I guess some people think is what the cost of discipleship means. Right. And surely being Christian uh, means more than just being seen as a little weird, right? Right, right. I mean, I would connect it to one of the passages in in this sermon series where Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to take up your cross and follow me. And we have trivialized what it means to take up your cross (laughs) in interesting ways that we can talk about, you know. But that's a line that a lot of people were disturbed by and walked away. I mean, Jesus wasn't trying to... A, run a church growth campaign clearly because he he says that a bunch of people are like screw that right. I don't want anything to do with that I was like well you know my favorite joke is that Jesus can only get 12 people to follow him so we're doing pretty good <laughs> around here right well and, and the second that he got more than 12 crowds started following around he'd say something like that right. if you want to be my disciple you might get executed right. and everyone's like uh no thank you <laughs> um, but you know I think as a function of being a Christian in this country we've, we've kind of obscured um, some of that uh, harsh edge to, to the stuff that Jesus said and the type of um, faith life he was calling us to, that transformative life that, that you know, might, might get you in trouble, might, you know, cost you something that, that you find comfortable and that you hold dear. And so I, I think we're getting, maybe getting back to a Christianity that 
that embraces some of those things rather than just avoids them. Well, as your senior pastor, I'm sitting here thinking, what's going to happen if our finance committee chair is listening to this conversation, um, or our stewardship chair? Um, what does this mean, right, for how we do church, and what happens? Um, what happens for the stability of our institution mm. in this conversation? I think one of the things, kind of paradoxically, that churches have been learning in the past several years is that with kind of following Jesus, yes, there is kind of like a winnowing that happens where um, you go through like a period of death first, but then there's like this period of renewal and rebirth that comes from that, resurrection that comes from that. And I think we can also fall into the trap of the cost of discipleship means that we're going to be small and like mm -hmm. people aren't going to come and it's going to be sad. And that's not what the cost of discipleship is. Yeah. Um, but because I think about all of specifically like with our church as an example, like all of the new people that have come as a result of the kind of hard things we've had to do um, in 2018 specifically and that. Um, there are there are people who want to follow Jesus and who want um, to pay the cost of discipleship and are, are tired of, of buying the cheap imitation product um, mm -hmm. that kind of American culture offers. Yeah. I heard the best story yesterday from one of our members. She came up to me and she said, you know, Lauren, I think you're going to find this very interesting. Uh, she said there was a couple who left our church and they went down the street to another church um, and they were there and they were just complaining and giving off this litany of reasons why they left our church. And uh, my neighbor was there and present and she came to me and said, I, as they were saying all of these things, I thought, this is exactly the kind of church that I want to be a part of. Where do you go to church? I want to come with you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really important point to make because, you know, we can, we can harp on the, the chaff burning aspect of this, which, you know, the Bible has all kinds of metaphors for what it takes to renew one's, you know, authentic and transformative faith life. And, you know, you're talking about winnowing as, as one of these metaphors and the church has to constantly be embracing those things. But on the other side of those things, God promises renewal and, and resurrection and that we, we have to, you know, both embrace the cost of getting there, but also look forward to you know, the hope that comes afterwards of a, a church that, that might be following Jesus uh, in a more um, faithful way. Because the cross leads us to resurrection. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the next, uh, the next question, which is the conceit of this sermon series, the cost of discipleship, comes from uh, the famous Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, book, and, you know, one of the kind of things that we addressed at several points in the sermon series was that, you know, does it feel dramatic to compare uh, our time with the rise of the Third Reich in, in Germany in the 1930s and, you know, the, thing, the things that Bonhoeffer, the decisions Bonhoeffer had to make uh, to be faithful um, you know, and some, some people would say, like, all right, I mean, you know, you're being a little, that's a little too far. Uh, you know, the Nazi comparison is, is, is crossing a line. Um, but what do you guys think about um, whether we're 
you know, being a little dramatic here, calling Bonhoeffer to mind. Are we in a Bonhoeffer moment, as I think uh, the Christian century asked recently? The question to are we being dramatic, well, that might depend on who you are, right? <laughs> certainly depends on who you are, whether you think we're being dramatic or not. And mm. I'd like to ask all of the people who are trying to migrate to our country right now if we were being dramatic. Um, all the children being held in tent cities, uh, whether we were being dramatic, um, I would certainly think their answer to that would be absolutely not. Um, I think we do live in a Bonhoeffer moment. Um, maybe we always live in a Bonhoeffer moment um, because we live in the world uh, where this is not the kingdom of God and we are always uh, doing harm to God's children and we are certainly doing a lot of harm right now in our country. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to the fact that we do always live in one. Um, thinking just about American history, think about, like, I, I talked with a bunch of college students recently about immigration um, and what it means for their faith, um, talking about refuge and immigration. And I walk them through kind of like American history with immigration and, like, this country begins with the immigration policies of the genocidal removal of Native Americans mm -hmm. and the immigration policy of forced labor through chattel slavery. And that endures through the Civil War and into Reconstruction. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, you have resistance to Jim Crow and lynching and segregation. And then you have the rise of fascist movements in the mid 20th century. And then immigration specifically doesn't get any better like in the subsequent decades like there are mass deportations under Herbert Hoover and Dwight Eisenhower and there are rejection of the concept of asylum for mm -hmm. Latin American wars under Ronald Reagan and neither Clinton or Obama or Bush are able to pass immigration reform either and then under Trump it's gotten measurably worse and like at no point, I think, in anywhere in that process, if you'd gone and asked an immigrant, do we live in a Bonhoeffer moment, would they have been able to say uh, no? Um, they would always say yes, of course you, of course you are. Um, and that's never changed. It's just kind of our, um, our, whether we're emphasizing it or not, or noticing it or not, that changes. And there's varying degrees of intensity, um, but it never goes away. Yeah, I mean, to, I think to me one of the um, one of the assumptions of that idea that it's dramatic to compare now with 1930s Germany is that Nazis were especially evil non-humans, yeah. and that what happened during the Holocaust was something that was so abnormal and so out of the so beyond the pale mm -hmm. of what human beings are capable of doing that it could never happen again. And we, we've reinforced that idea in the way we've taught um, that history. But I guarantee you, I don't have one on the tip of my tongue, but you could go back and find quotes from you know, middle upper class uh, Christian Germans during the 1930s when people were calling attention to what was happening, saying, guys, stop being dramatic. It's not that bad. Like, and just flat out denials that, that it was happening at all, yeah. which is happening always happens um, and it's happening now so I think you know we have to get back to understanding why things happened in Germany the way they happened and the fact that everybody involved in that scenario was human yeah. and that there's nothing inherently evil about 
the German folk who killed Jewish people during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. They did what human beings do in situations when they're, you know, so there, there's, there's a, yeah, there's a, a sense in which we need to understand that, you know, we are not better than them. And that the only thing that can keep us from going down paths like that is to acknowledge what's happening and to repent and to work to keep it from happening. And so, you know, not talking about it is not going to help. Um, and not making comparisons is not going to help. We need to understand what, what happened and how we can prevent it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, whether or not we are in the intensity of, you know, the final solution is, is something we could debate, but we certainly should be paying attention to the signs um, that we might be headed down that path. To switch gears a little bit, but maybe not so much. Um, Wes, in your sermon, you talked about the difference between responding from a place of fragility and responding from a place of vulnerability when one is confronted with sin. Um, can you explain again what you meant by that distinction between fragility and vulnerability and what you think leads people to, to respond out of fragility, how they get to that place? I mean, I can kind of start with my own experience that um, early, like, I think like when, of when I was in college, I had a um, black professor in the religion department who um, is an exceptional educator and exceptional at uh, challenging our preconceived notions um, that we came into into school with and when we would talk about race my knee-jerk reaction was always to create an exception for myself Mm. that even to acknowledge the history of racism and white supremacy in the united states the knee-jerk reaction was always to carve out some kind of exception for me and the people that i loved and the people that i was friends with Um, because my conception of myself and my conception of my communities was too fragile um, to withstand significant criticism Mm. um, of how they operated and how they've operated in the past. And it's a fragility is what I would say is like a defensiveness in response to our own sin that, that we're free to acknowledge sin and talk about sin as long as it's about somebody else. Um, but when it's about us, suddenly we, we want to defend ourselves and exceptionalize ourselves and get ourselves out of it. Uh, and God calls us not to that fragility, though. God calls us to the kind of vulnerability that leads to repentance. You can't be fragile and defensive and repent of your sin. Because uh, <laughs> repentance involves confession and recognizing what's wrong and being honest about what's wrong because that's the only way that you can move to repentance and new life is what's on the other side of repentance and you can't get there unless you're honest about yourself and you're honest about um, the world. It's going to say just like we were talking about earlier that we like to see other people as all good or all bad, right? And we don't want to see the complexity of humanity. We don't want to see ourselves in that way either. We want to hold on to the idea that we're all good 
and that you know anything that yes we could have made some good decisions and we could have made um, some holistic decisions and uh, more vulnerable and being more vulnerable in some places rather than you know holding um, from others um, but then at the same time like what does it mean for me to say I've done the best that I can and I know how but that wasn't good enough and I'm caught up in something that's larger than myself mm. um, yeah you so this this metaphor makes me think of um, uh, what happens to a human body uh, when it so let's let's just use a car accident as an example but when you're you know when you're in a car accident if you stiffen up um, mm -hmm. then you sustain more serious injuries than if you are relaxed mm -hmm. um, uh, it's what happens actually um, when you know a drunk driver hits somebody else and the drunk driver doesn't get as right. hurt as the other person because they were they're so inebriated that they didn't stiffen up mm -hmm. right but this kind of metaphor plays itself out with fragility versus vulnerability and that if you get defensive and tighten up the the injury that is you know done to you is actually what like you break easier you become more fragile by by getting defensive rather than if you kind of are you soften and become vulnerable and are willing to accept the the confrontation mm -hmm. then you can actually heal faster and, and accept it um, quicker and it doesn't make as big a, an impact. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's a way to be able to receive criticism and that, this plays out on a national scale, right? Mm -hmm. Some people have a fragile conception of America yeah. that cannot sustain any criticism whatsoever and it goes all the way down to the personal as well. I wonder if you guys might talk about what it might mean to be uh, a white male and be fragile because when I hear these kinds of things, I sometimes do default more to a place of vulnerability. It's how I've learned to navigate the world mm. as a white woman. Um, but what does it mean and how do you think white males in particular are drawn to this stance of fragility? I think there's... There's a, uh, white males in particular tend to take um, criticism of anybody that they identify with as something personal to them. Uh, I think of, I think I can't like answer this question without thinking about Brett Kavanaugh mm -hmm. and the national conversation um, or lack of conversation there was around uh, his past and his history because there was so much of a response to the allegations against him that was born out of a lot of white males concern about their own selves mm -hmm. as represented in Kavanaugh that if Kavanaugh did something wrong they did something wrong mm -hmm. and to be vulnerable and admit sin and admit wrongdoing um, was a sign of, of weakness mm -hmm. uh, and that they would in some ways be destroyed by the admission of weakness um, and the admission of vulnerability and the admission of fault um, that the, the playbook is deny, 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 deny because to do anything else is to 
admit weakness. And I think masculinity in our society is um, conditioned on that yeah. to not admit weakness. Definitely. I mean, that, that the only thing I would add to that is just that I think men, and I'm going to broaden it away from, I mean, it's specifically a problem among white males, but I think masculinity in our society, um, uh, we are socialized to uh, avoid all vulnerability, all examination, um, to the point that it, you know, is really a hindrance, uh, and, and again, like, it becomes a disease within us that is, you know, that is a vicious cycle. It's, 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 you can't fix it because you can't address it because you can't acknowledge that it exists and it's, you know, it spins out of control like we saw in the, in the Kavanaugh case. Um, but really you can see played out daily in the interactions of men um, where, you know, we, we become these people who are incapable of addressing our own faults because of the way we are taught to be men in the world. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine Kavanaugh's statement because I can't imagine a circumstance of getting up and saying that I have absolutely, under no circumstances, done anything wrong and not been able to imagine that, right? For me, like, he was so um, unbelievable almost because it was like, well, you know, if you could just say, hey, yeah, I've probably done some things in my life that I've regretted, but I think what was so stark for me is just that commitment to what you're talking about, which is deny, 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 the playbook is deny. Um, I can't be seen as a complex human being who may have done some things wrong and have done some things good, and when we start to otherize and demonize each other, um, and I, it's almost inconceivable to me to hear someone talk like that. Um, yeah, I mean, since we're talking about that, I think the text bit, textbook uh, example of a fragile response versus a vulnerable vulnerable one would be when you know uh, Senator Klobuchar is asking uh, Kavanaugh about his his drinking and whether he's ever had so much to drink so the one thing that he did admit was that right. I like beer yeah uh, he admitted it times. several times yeah, yeah. Um, something but, I could say too but I wouldn't yeah. be saying that out loud but Senator Klobuchar is asking him have you ever had enough to drink that you you know maybe didn't remember something that happened and instead right. of saying Instead of thinking about that question and, right. and being able to say, like, maybe, um, his response was, do you like beer? You know, it was complete deflection, and, like, that's a fragile response. He didn't even let that question enter him. It was just, like, completely turn it back on the person asking the question. And, again, Kavanaugh is not... Kavanaugh is a product of a society which social, socializes men to react like that. He's not different. He's the same as everybody else. Um, and he just became a national <laughs> example of, of our inability to address our, our past and our faults in a constructive and healthy manner. Because it's like a, I think like that, that form of masculinity that behaves that way is like a poison that infects mm -hmm. kind of all aspects of our society. Like as long as around half of our society are men who are in danger of this poison infecting our lives like it's going to affect how everything relates everyone relates to each other like it's not just like what's talking about um, sexuality and um, the relations between 
the people's sexual relationships. When you talk about consent, mm-hmm. to for a man to ask for consent is an act of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And we have such a problem with consent in our country, partially because of this lack of a willingness to be vulnerable mm-hmm. with one another. And that's not the only cause. There's a whole lot more behind that about power and everything, too. Um, but it's, it's almost anathema to people to think about um, asking people if they want something because there's the possibility of rejection. rejection yeah. And fragility doesn't want to enter that scenario where mm-hmm. rejection could happen. And then that plays itself out all over the place socially, like the way men interact on the job with people, mm-hmm. um, the way that men interact with people who are serving them at restaurants and other service industry places is all born out of the idea that they cannot be, they cannot relate on the same level with the people that they are discussing. They must always have the the high ground Mm -hmm. or be vulnerable. Um, So it affects everything. Um, The ability to be vulnerable um, or fragile is really important. Yeah. So since this is such a huge problem, I mean, I wonder if either of you have any, like, concrete steps or practices that might, you know, lead people from fragility to vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And then, like, what kind of, what kind of environment is, is necessary for, for that to even happen in? Like, what, how, do we, how do we fix this? How can we move from fragility to vulnerability? I think, well, you're just making me think about what I'm doing to raise my son, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who's four and already... Uh, buys into wonderful, uh, not so wonderful, um, societal uh, images of what it means to be a a boy, right? Well, boys are this way, and boys are fast, and boys are strong, and I'm stronger than you, Mommy, because you're a girl. And, um, you know, how does also when he buys into this lie um, of toxic masculinity, and then he somehow gets challenged that he's not all, all, all good, and then how does that destroy his own self-image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what I worry about, is you have a bunch of men walking around who are incapable of being whole human beings because they can't see themselves for who they really are, right? Um, and be vulnerable in that way. Um, I don't know, I mean, what do we say to our children? Like, how do we, um, what do we, res- how do we respond in that way? And how do we not um, continue to unquestioningly allow them to believe the things that they're taught um i don't know (laughs) Uh, yeah i mean i think some of the communal practices we have in our faith might be part of the solution of this which is uh you know forgiveness Mm -hmm. well honesty repentance and forgiveness are something that we that have deep you know deep roots as communal practices within you know christianity and not just christianity but what would it mean for um men to know they could come to uh, a church be honest about this is why AA works so well because it's a space where men know they can come be honest about their faults and they will be loved and accepted and forgiven and be able to move past them um, to be whole, right? right? To acknowledge all of yourself and be accepted for that. This is where AA does community better than church, exactly. right? And they exactly. know one another better than church members often, and they're more vulnerable with one another than church members often are. Yeah. 
think the practice of confession is really important to that mm-hmm. too. Um, even just the spiritual act of confessing before God and not even getting to the point where you're confessing to other people, but like mm-hmm. being able to like during the prayers of the people on Sundays, be able to say, no, I did something wrong this week. Um, is it, is it extremely important act to be able to not be fragile in the world? Mm. Because if you can't sit in silence and say, no, I did something wrong to where only you and God can hear you. If you can't do that, you're never going to be able to tell like another human being that you were wrong. Mm. Um, and the ability to, as a relational practice, admit to other people that you're wrong, I think is really important to that, even in like small things. Mm-hmm. Um, we often have a reflex to like, we're not actually interested in the actual answer to a problem, but more that we're right, um, or that we're at least not admitting that we were wrong. <laughs> um, and taking even small steps in the rest of your life that when you're wrong to say to the other person with which you were wrong to say, hey, it's not really that important now because we're doing the right thing, but I was wrong. Um, That can go a long way with kind of realigning your spirit (laughs) and um, between fragility and vulnerability, and we don't do that enough. Mm. Well, I think then we also have to be mindful what kind of response do we have when Mm. someone comes to us and tells us something about what they've done that's wrong or how they've treated us, right? Um, Whenever we learn of the sins of other people, um, do we try to extend them grace, right? Um, or do we run and tell our friends about what they've done? <laughs> or, um, you know, how are we modeling God's compassion and empathy and grace whenever someone does choose to be vulnerable? And if people question whether we're going to do that or not, and if we don't demonstrate ourselves to be the kind of people who are going to be compassionate, then it will be harder to move from fragility to vulnerability. Yeah. And I think you're getting at that ten- the tension that is inherent in the term like cheap grace because it, in order to not offer cheap grace, you have to both have that level of compassion and acceptance and hold people accountable to transformation right. and repentance. And you can't have one without the other, which a lot of churches either have one or the other. Have one or the other. Exactly. They, they want to extend you know, cheap grace to, to everyone regardless and like not acquire any, any fruit, <laughs> any like transformative life, discipleship. Uh, any discipleship. Right. Um, and then, you know, you can have the other side of the coin where there's no, there's no grace being extended to people so that that doesn't create an environment where, you know, men or anybody is willing to be them, be their whole self. All right. The next uh, thing I want to uh, ask you guys about is, um, so in the fir- fourth sermon in our series, we were talking about Mark 9, where the disciples are arguing about who the greatest is, um, and Jesus puts a child in the middle of them and says, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Um, you know, I think it's pretty much impossible to ignore the fact that Jesus is rebuking the disciples' desire for greatness on the world's terms, and to draw the comparison that our current president was elected and is still campaigning on the idea that he will make America great again. That the, the terms of the conversation seem really strikingly similar to me. Um, 
Lauren, in your sermon that you preached, you quoted various politicians, not just Donald Trump, talking about America's greatness and cautioned us that we must be careful not to confuse the vision of American greatness with the vision of the kingdom of God. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into that and maybe talk about some specifics because I think it's hard to um, it's hard to address what we're talking about without being specific. Um, so what what do you all think Donald Trump means when he references American greatness? And we can you know talk about other politicians too, but he's using this as his kind of platform. So I think he's a good person to and people seem to have latched onto it. Um, and how is this different than what Jesus calls us to? And how are we in the place where Christians seem confused about what Jesus, about, it's about this passage, about what Jesus is calling us to, enough to wholeheartedly support making America great at other people's expense? I'm not sure about the answer to that last question. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, what does Donald Trump mean when he references American greatness? A lot of folks had a really difficult time hearing um, what I said in this sermon, um, and much of it was just a quote <laughs> um, of Donald Trump's initial campaign speech, right? You know, and he says, uh, to be great is to be better than everyone else, simply, right? To be great uh, for Donald Trump means to be better than everyone else, to be um, the richest, um, the greatest, um, the people who beat everyone else, right? Um, who rise to the rise to the top? To be um, first. To be first. America first. Right. Um, and I'm not quite sure how we've gotten into the place where um, that's so contrary to the gospel, and yet um, there are folks um, who have greatly misunderstood what the gospel means and who think that that's gospel. And I think it's how we bought into it is just part and parcel of what it means to be an American. Like, since the founding of the United States, many people have equated the concept of being a good Christian with being a good citizen. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the actual truth is to be a good Christian is to be a very bad citizen. Mm -hmm. uh, to be a good Christian is to not be invested in the kind of prosperity of your nation over and against other nations. To, to be a good Christian is to not prioritize security over hospitality mm. to people. And in the United States, we've been so inundated with the idea that to be great is to be first and best and um, to have the most and to be secure when Jesus paints a very different picture in the Gospels, that to be great is not to be safe, and it's not to have a lot of resources, and it's not um, to be the best. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, the thing that's so striking about this to me is that we, we are using the same terms that, that Jesus is using here, America first. And Jesus is literally saying, if you want to be first, you have to be last. And... I think, I think you're right that part of the problem here is that we have been really, really bad in this country, especially with translating the tenets of our faith to national concerns, because we think they're separate realms mm -hmm. of existence, and that it's possible to follow Jesus in one's personal life, and that have no bearing on what you think is 
right and good for the, for the country and its policies. And I think that's the kind of spiritualizing and dis, you know, distinction that we've made that is starting to break down for people, which I find very hopeful. Um, but I think it's also that we're in a, we're in a period where that, the water is being troubled there and, and people are having a hard time reconciling what they've been taught their whole lives, which is that what's good for America is, is good for everybody. Um, but so it's hard for people to kind of reconcile what they've heard their whole lives with this new understanding for them, at least not new for, for a, a lot of people, but new for, for some folk, um, that maybe what's good for America is bad for some people and maybe Christians have to care about that. Underlying everything he says about greatness, everything Trump says about greatness is some level of fear about other people, right? Mm -hmm. And that there's a scarcity of resources in the world um, that we all must fight over. Like, why would we work so hard to keep other people from coming to, to join us and be with us and putting up a wall to keep them out? If we thought that there was enough to go around in the world, yeah. um, then we wouldn't do that, right? But we don't. We live under this myth of scarcity um, and the fear of other people and how they might take something that belongs to us. And I think that's a, that's, I want to legitimize that fear right. um, by saying that I think white people in America do stand to, quote, lose some of the wealth and power right. and privilege they've enjoyed by monopolizing it mm -hmm. for, the, for the last 400 years. But the question for me is, if you're a Christian, you have to think about that in a different way. And this is what we mean by the cost of discipleship. Is it really, is it faithful, actually, for you to willingly pay that cost rather than resisting it with every fiber of your being, which seems to be the stance that a lot of folks are taking to the, the fact that they will be in the minority soon. Uh, that kind of transitions me to a, a follow-up I wanted to ask about that, which is what do you think it means for white Christians to become servants of all? <laughs> and how can we do it without reinscribing power dynamics where we have all the resources, scare quote, mm -hmm. and think of ourselves as swooping in to save other people. I think, you know, this passage, some people do think they're being servants. We hear that terminology a lot in Christian life. Um, but, but the way they think of that doesn't actually redistribute power in, in, in a way that it just kind of leaves white folk in charge of everything, but um, you know, as long as we serve in the soup kitchen every now and then, we're being servant of all. But what would it actually mean to do what Jesus is saying here, and to become last and servants of all in a way that doesn't just give us more power and prestige in the end? We have to listen, right? <laughs> I have to listen first to other people who um, are affected by policies and uh, everything else that we're not affected by. Um, I just keep thinking about this conversation that we always have about the privileged stance of someone who gets exasperated by elections and says, um, you know, we, I'm just not going to vote um, because there's just no good options out there, right? Um, and a privileged white person can say that and refrain from voting and consider it a moral stance um, because their life is not really going to be drastically changed, perhaps, no matter who wins, right? 
Um, but you know, as we move towards midterm elections, and one of you were saying the other day, like, what would it mean um, if someone decided, okay, well, I'm not going to vote, but I'm going to go down the street and listen to my neighbor um, over here who, you know, is a, a non-documented citizen, and I'm going to ask them who they would vote for, and I'm going to go cast my vote alongside theirs, right? Um, that might be one way <laughs> to respond, to listen. Um, to act um, and to give other people resources um, by changing the whole dynamic. I think um, this, is, this is a word they use a lot in the Bible and nobody uses anymore, um, but like yoking yourself with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that, that's evoking the, the metaphor of like taking, um, taking, some, taking a burden on an ox like onto itself so like if you're not in relationship with someone who and people who are not just like you um and you don't feel their pain as if it was your own pain you're never going to get to the point where you're becoming a servant of all um that it's only at the point when you're as invested in their freedom as your freedom, as you are in your freedom, that you'll ever get to that point. Mm-hmm. And that means suffering consequences with them. That means um, showing up when they ask you to show up and occupying the same spaces and holding the same interests. Um, this is why I think community organizing as a mission strategy for white churches in particular mm-hmm. is really important because community organizing forces you to be in relationship with other people. Yeah. It's not just about strategic partnerships to shift resources around. It's about being in relationships with the other people in your community so that you can figure out what are the things that need to change to make us all free. Yeah. Um, and if you're not doing that, you're just kind of treating whatever you see as the symptoms of a problem. Um, and you're not actually getting at what other people might know are the actual roots of the problem. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's calling to mind for me a word that we should probably use more often, which is solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that word hasn't been, I mean, in some cases maybe, but it, it still retains some of its, you know, true meaning. Um, it hasn't been inf- infected with a, with, a, with a weird other meaning um, yet. But, uh, you know, to be in solidarity with somebody uh, who is different from you, in whatever way you want to list out um, is a good way of thinking about what it means to, to both be in a relationship that yokes you to them um, and also, uh, you know, learning how to both share and leverage one's power and resources together in ways that kind of shift the, the, the dynamic. Um, how can we be in solidarity with people? Um, truly. Well, I think our congregation learned that when they learned how to be in solidarity with Jill, right? Um, And when he was detained and deported. And I think that illustration in and of itself for me makes me think about you're in it with somebody, you feel their pain, um, you learn something about the problem that you didn't know existed. We learned things about immigration law um, that we didn't know about. Um, because we walked beside Jill, we were in solidarity with him, and now that the story has no happy ending, 
mm-hmm. we live on the other side of it in solidarity with Joel um, as we think about you know and what does that mean and what does it say about us and I think sometimes that's difficult for people when there's no resolution yeah. um, to continue to think about the world in a way where there was no happy ending um, and how do we continue to work towards a world where uh, people like Jill could get what they need. Yeah. And it, but if nothing else, it opens us up to the experiences of the of people like Jill. Who never have resolution. Right, right. I mean, we, a lot of t- what we've thought about many times in, the, um, in that situation is, you know, we know Jill. Right. But we also know there's plenty of pe- The statistics tell us that there's tons of people like Jill that this is happening to. And what would... What would the experience of a person like Jill have been without Greenwood Forest and solidarity with, with him? Without the resources. Um, and it, it makes it totally different for everyone. Um, and I, it's not that you'll always win, that the scenario will always turn out well, but um, you know, it does mean something that Jill had a community and solidarity with him. It meant something for both parties. Um, and it changes everyone. And um, you know, it it the world turns out differently than it than it would have. Were were there were we not in relationship with him enough to to, to walk with him? This has been Greenwood Forest. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in learning more about our community, check out gfbccarry.org or come visit us in person sometime.